Welcome to Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever, a podcast for the thinking Washington Wizards fan. My name is Ben Becker. My co-host is a hero to nerdy Wizards fans everywhere, myself included. Hello, Kevin Broom. Hey, Ben. Glad to be a hero to somebody. <laughs> Kevin, when we last recorded, the Wizards were red hot. They were 26-20 and 20 and staring at four winnable games. They took care of business, went 4-0, and now sit at 30-20. and 20. Since their 2-8 and eight start, they are playing at a 700 clip. I have dubbed this season's team the Stonehenge Wizards because mm-hmm. they're both incredible and really hard to explain. They've become a national story, they're getting more and more attention, and have the NBA champion and longtime nemesis Cleveland Cavaliers rolling into town. Mm-hmm. We're about to find out just how good these Wizards are. Kevin, why are the Wizards on such a roll, and what type of chance do you give them against the Cavs? Why are they good? You look at three players that have suddenly become what you would expect top three picks to become. John Wall, Otto Porter, Bradley Beal. All playing like like top three picks, and then you've got Gortat, who has improved steadily over the last uh, you know couple months, really over the last month, I guess, where he's now sort of inching back up to his career norm in terms of overall production. And you know, Markeith Morris, of course, had just an insane January for him. We'll get into him a little bit more, I think, as we go on. But the last few weeks, you know, the Wizards are on a seven-game winning streak. They're a tip-in from 13 in a row. This team is rolling, and some of it is a weak schedule, but some of it is they've really improved, and they're actually a pretty good team this year. I mean, we need to just pause for a second to appreciate the fact that this is incredibly weird for people who have followed and cared about this franchise for a really long time. I don't remember a sustained level of play this high for this long in a really long time. And it's still just at this point of not knowing exactly what to make of this. It's fun as all hell, Mm -hmm. but at some point you got to think that things are going to settle themselves down a little bit, right? Well, you've been very well trained through the years as a Wizards fan to think (laughs) this has to come back down to earth. No way can the Wizards actually be this good. But maybe they are. Maybe they are. I mean, they've got some weaknesses, of course. But, I mean, there is a chance, of course, that they could sustain it. The, The big thing that they have to answer and to look at is whether they can sort of fix their weaknesses patch up their weaknesses without weakening what they're doing well. The Cavs have been struggling for NBA champions, and that's been a national story in and of itself. LeBron's been publicly sparring with the front office a little bit, saying they need to make some moves. They did dispatch the Knicks quite easily Mm -hmm. without Kyrie Irving. You expect that the Cavs are going to roll into town and be pretty focused. Based on the available data that you've got, Mm -hmm. what kind of chance do the Wizards have in this game? Well, okay, so let's break this into two chunks. The first is if we use the full season's worth of data. And just to give you a bigger overview here, the full season worth of data, the Wizards, I would expect them, I would have them at coin flip underdogs using the full season's worth of data, meaning that's plus or minus 5%. So I would have them with about a 47% chance of 47% chance of winning. So 
like I said, coin flip underdogs. But if you take the last 40 games, you throw out those first 10 and just say, you know what, that was the sort of an extended preseason for the Wizards. They were learning Scott Brooks. They were learning each other. They were learning their roles. Since then, the Wizards are plus four in scoring differential, which is pretty good. That would be seventh in the league over the full season. That's a good team. Um, now, they've played a week schedule about a point per game worse than average. So you're talking about like, instead of like a 41 win team, you're talking about a 37, 38 win team, Calib- you know, that level of play. And so you run all that together and it comes out to over those 40 games, if they'd done that over the whole season, they would be sitting around eighth. And if you take just those last 40 games, just that half season, basically, the Wizards would be coin flip favorites over Cleveland on Monday. So this is a kind of a pick em game. Either team could win this game. If the last 40 games are real, you think the Wizards have a decent chance of winning. Um, even if you take the full season's worth of data, you think the Wizards have a decent chance of winning. Um, Cleveland is not head and shoulders better than Washington this season. That's a little nutty. It is. It's Just from a matchup standpoint, I am concerned about the about Cleveland's size in the front court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Cleveland does have good size, and but they're what they really do well is shoot threes. They're uh, they shoot, I think, the second most threes in the league, and they shoot at the third best percentage. They're I think third or fourth in corner threes, and uh, again, very high percentage on those shots. Uh, you know, third or fourth best in the league might be fifth, but they're top five in that. So they do a good job of getting good shots, and. I mean, you would expect that with a guy like LeBron and a guy like Kyrie Irving on the roster that they would be able to get the kind of shots that they need. I, the thing with Cleveland is there's like two teams. There's the regular season Cleveland and then there's the postseason Cleveland. And they've been, you know, had some nagging injuries through January. They did have a losing record, but kind of wonder which Cleveland team you're going to get. Is it the focused, healthy team that could beat Golden State, you know, three in a row to win the title last year? Or is it the I team heard that happened. Yeah, or is it the team that's kind of looking ahead to the future and the playoffs and trying to save their energy for that? Well, if we get the focused Cavs, my concern is the Otto Porter defensive matchup because if he's if he's matched up on LeBron, that I think that's potentially problematic for the Wizards. And then when they bring Oubre in, and slide Otto to the four. I'm pretty worried about Kevin Love taking him into the post. That said, the Wizards have exceeded my expectations and allayed a lot of fears so far this season. So I will be rooting for them big time against the Cavs. And and here's hoping they come through with another statement. Yeah, yeah, it would be a big statement if they beat Cleveland. I would think that given what Washington has done over the last month and their climb in the standings, that Cleveland would be interested in sending them a message. So I want to touch on a few guys. I know we've talked about Markeith Morris a lot, and mm-hmm. he deserves it, frankly. Uh, I want to talk about him a little more. In the following context, the Wizards didn't, did win these past four games. And again, this is something that I feel like Wizards teams of the past just wouldn't do. They would have found a way to to lose at least one of these games that they should win. They're just they're better than they were. But something that sort of caught my eye was as part of this this fantastic run of play, uh, Morris has been 
he's been lights out. He's been way outside of his career norms. And both the Laker game and the most recent Pelican game were a little closer than maybe the Wizards would have liked them. The final scores, the scoring margin looks just fine. But there were the game was in doubt relatively late in both games. And Morris's performance jumped out at me. So in those two games, he scored 30 points on 30 shots, which to be clear is not very good. He committed nine fouls. He was two of 11 from three. If you contrast that to the previous 10 games, he scored 18 a game on 13 shots, which is pretty darn decent, was a lights out 46% from three, and he committed three and a half fouls a game. It seems like when Morris is making shots, he's less frustrated and he's not committing as many silly fouls. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's this con- lingering concern that the Wizards being fantastic is a relatively delicate balance, and they need Morris to produce at a really high level in order for them to continue to be a really good team. What do you think about that? Well, I agree. I think that they have a delicate balance in a couple of ways. One of them is that this great run has involved... You know, three guys playing career best, talking about Wall, Beal, and Porter. But those guys are all sort of predictably career best in the sense that they're fairly young and nobody's playing outlandishly better. It's not like, you know, anybody is playing at league MVP level or anything like that. They're all playing at an excellent level for them. And But, again, not unexpected because of their, their youth. And then you've got a guy like Gortat who's sort of returning to his career norm um, over the month of January, after, oh, in terms of overall production, after sort of a down December and November. And then you've got Morris, and suddenly in January, he played a lot better. And odds are, you know, a guy 27 years old with, you know, several thousand career minutes isn't just going to suddenly improve and then sustain that improvement. That's, that's not usually the way it works with a guy of his experience and, and at this point in his career, what you can get are these aberrant stretches where he plays much better. And then there could it could be followed by a stretch where he plays significantly worse or where he just sort of recedes back to what his more established career norms are. And it, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It could be that, you know, he's found the right place. They've got some synergy going and he, he's just going to be better going forward. Maybe not quite that as good, but still better, maybe at the level of an average starter instead of at the level of a little bit below average player. My guess is we're probably going to see him recede back to that more a little bit below average player because that's what he'd established as his career norm for you know however many thousands of minutes. But the other way that the team is in a delicate balance is with their lack of depth and their relatively weak bench. You know, if anything happens to Wall or Porter in particular, you know, if one of those guys goes down for a couple months or for a month, they're going to be really hurting, especially if Wall goes down because their backcourt is so inexperienced and untalented behind him. And I'm speaking specifically of, of you know, Sadoransky not really being that experienced. He's playing better, but not being that experienced and not a guy that I would really think could replace a wall in terms of running the team. And Trey Burke certainly cannot. 
Interesting note on Sadaransky, by the way. Since he returned to the rotation 12 games ago, offensive rating of 129, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, true shooting percentage of 68.2. His turnovers are definitely higher than you'd like. Overall, an encouraging sign that he may be settling in a bit. I don't disagree with you at all that I would that 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 there's a big drop off between he and John. And and this would be the case with John Wall and and a great many backup sure. point guards in the NBA. I actually think that with the trade deadline looming, and we'll jump into this in a few minutes, the Wizards need to figure out Sadoransky pretty soon from the standpoint of, is he in their plans? Is he going to be there? Is he going to be in their playoff rotation? Do they think he's going to be their backup point guard next year? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if he is, they need to commit to him. And if he's not, then he should potentially be part of potential assets that are on the block. We, 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 can, we can talk about that more in a couple minutes. So speaking of the delicate balance, I want to talk a little bit about Jason Smith, whom we both love. Well, I love his bald spot more than his game. I, I love his personality. He's funny. Yeah, and I love no, I like spot. him. He's a good guy. So he didn't play in the Clipper win on December 18th. Since then, he's played in every game. I think it's 23 or 24 games. He's played around 15 minutes a night. And over that span, he's got a rock-solid offensive rating of 112, a true shooting percentage of 61.2. Again, very decent. And he's blocking shots at a gargantuan rate, 6%. And just to put that into context, over the course of the season, that would put him third in the NBA behind Miles Turner and Rudy Gobert. So what are the chances that Jason Smith is not going to experience a serious reversion to the mean? Um, He's going to experience a reversion to the mean. Remember, when they acquired Jason Smith, he was career a little bit, you know, basically a replacement level, slightly better than a replacement level player. And that's what he established as his career you know his career norm this year he started really badly if you throw out his first 10 games and so you're looking at only the last 40 games he's got a ppa of 61 we've talked about ppa that's my metric player production average which weights the various stats based on how they contribute to winning and 100 in ppa 100 is average higher is better replacement level is around 45 Smith rated uh, over the last 40 games a 61. For the season, he rates a 40. So he's been better over the last 40. He was really awful in those first 10 games. You know, since his last did not play against the Clippers, he's got a PPA of 65. So that's in this category of like a useful reserve, but it's also better than where he's been. And if you look at his last 10, he's playing way over his head. He's at a 71 PPA. My guess is by the end of the year, he'll be right around 55 or so, which is his career norm, which means he's going to play a little worse than average the rest of the way. That shot blocking that you talked about, the 6% rate, that's about double his career norm. So that's going to come down. You know, you don't get guys who suddenly improve that much at age 30. Well, look, if Smith continues to produce, even not at this rate, but if he continues to produce above what we expected... Same for Morris. Scott Brooks is 
would be seriously deserving of some coach of coach of the year votes. Yeah. And I want to use that opportunity to just detour a little bit to plug the most recent episode of Mike Prada, that's Bullets Forever founder and Wizards blogosphere luminary Mike Prada, to plug his recent Limited Upside podcast with his partner, Ben Epstein. They had a truly insightful and fantastic interview with Jay Michael from CSN. And there was a lot of discussion about Brooks and Whitman and the improvement from Brooks to Whitman. It it made me feel great about Brooks as a hire. It made me feel a little bit upset that the Wizards waited so long to move on from Whitman. But what's done is done in that respect. But I highly, highly recommend that podcast for anyone who hasn't listened to it and who wants to gain further insight into Scott Brooks and the Wizards. That's a good segue to a discussion of Brooks's challenge, impending challenge in reintegrating Jan Mahinmi into the Wizards rotation. He's likely due back before the All-Star break. And the Wizards are in a little bit of a tough spot. It's it's a it's a good problem to have, so to speak, because they've really settled into a de- defined rotation with relatively defined roles. And they're about to bring in a guy who, coming into the season, they were expecting to have a regular role. How is Brooks going to fit Mahinmi into the rotation when where they really need help is in the backup backcourt? Yeah, that's a, it's going to be an interesting question to see how he resolves that. My feeling on it is to not get sentimental about Jason Smith. He looks to me like this year's Razul Butler... But less so. You know, Butler played at an all-star level for a few weeks, stole the Wizards some wins that year, and then dropped off the planet in terms of his production. Smith hasn't been that good, but I would expect a similar kind of drop-off. And so I wouldn't get too attached to his minutes, and I wouldn't feel at all bad about replacing his minutes with Mahinmi's. I think that the real help for the backcourt needs to come from outside the team, and I think they need to make a move in the backcourt to to trade or sign somebody, but to see if there's somebody outside the team who can come in and bolster the backcourt off the bench and as a potential replacement in case either Wall or Beal gets hurt for a while, rather than trying to juggle the the lineup and juggle the rotation and juggle people into different positions to make up for what they're not getting in uh, from the guards off the bench. Well, look, the Mahinmi thing is something to keep an eye on. Ostensibly, part of the reason for the early season struggles were the Brooks was trying to find a rotation. People were trying to find their roles. Now they're set in them, and they're going to have to adjust on the fly a little bit. And so there could be a backtrack as a result of that. But I want to jump into this trade question with you. It's been uh, it's been asked in several places in the Wizards blogosphere recently. Generally, you're not a big fan of trading picks for help now because of the way the Wizards are set up. They don't have a ton to trade, and that goes back to mm-hmm. the, some of the mistakes that were made over the summer that we've talked about 
ad nauseum or at least some form of upset stomach. Yeah, let me interrupt for just just one second because I I this is something I've been thinking about a little, and I find it fascinating is that this is the best team they've had in potentially decades, and they're almost doing it in spite of their general manager. You know, they they completely they had a horrible off season, and the reason that the team is winning is because their top three picks are playing like top three picks, and the reason that they had those top three picks was because their general manager had really done such a crummy job of using assets previously. So it's this weird thing where they're good, and the fact that they're good is going to keep Ernie Grunfeld in his job, even though he's really done a lousy job of building the team. You know I am not the first person who would step forward in Ernie Grunfeld's defense. What I will say Mm -hmm. in Ernie Grunfeld's defense is he he has nailed the— the coaching hire, which obviously is hard to quantify, but it's it's working, and that's pretty important. And the other thing is, the jury is still out, and there's a long way to go. But the the move to move up to take Ubre seems to be a good one. It's at least way too early to say it's a bad one. I know Ubre is not a consistently productive player yet. I like the trend lines on him. But the Wizards are where they are. They have a, a subpar bench. They don't have a lot of young players that they're not counting on right now that, they, that are desirable to other teams in a trade. I hear what you're saying mm-hmm. is the Wizards are finally good. The East doesn't have five other elite teams this year. If you're ever going to trade a pick in an effort to improve your team, this is sort of when you do it. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that this year there is an opportunity at the top. You know, Cleveland does not look formidable. They're good, but they're not overwhelmingly great. Even in the playoffs last year, they didn't look dominant even as they won a championship. You know, they, they got hot against Golden State and LeBron raised it to another level and that's always always going to be a challenge when you get to the playoffs because LeBron does have that superhuman, you know, pantheon player ability. But there's a real opportunity here in the East. Cleveland would be the clear favorite no matter what. Toronto is pretty good, Boston is pretty good, and then there's the Wizards and the Wizards are just as good as Boston for example. They're close to as good as Toronto especially if you look at over the last 40 games and they're doing it really with five good players. And if they could make a move and bring in somebody to help them, who knows what they could do? They you know, maybe the Eastern Conference Finals is within reach. Maybe squeaking through the Eastern Conference Finals and getting to the finals. I know it's crazy talk, but Cleveland and Toronto and Boston are not, you know, super dominant teams. It's not like they have to go through Golden State or San Antonio to get to the finals. They have to go through teams that are a little better than than they are on paper. And, you know, why not make a move and take your shot this year? Luck obviously plays a huge role, right? If certain key players in the conference turn an ankle, then then odds change significantly. So I, sure. I, I hear, and, I hear what you know, you're saying. The same thing with the Wizards. If the Wizards can stay healthy, then maybe they, then they can be as good as anybody in the East. The the one one and I'm saying help. Them. Yeah, the one thing that that does concern me on the the if not maybe going all in isn't the right term, but but 
putting a lot of chips on the table right now is Toronto and Boston, while they may not be appreciably better than the Wizards, they both have much better asset bases from which to trade. Toronto's got multiple first-round picks. They both, you know, Boston's got a bunch of recent first-round picks, young players that that they could trade, and they both have some expiring contracts. So there is there is the possibility, and we're just going to have to wait and see, there is the possibility that the Wizards make a move and and Toronto and Boston make moves that help them more. But I, I guess that's not a reason not to improve yourself. Yeah. And then for years, the Wizards have been spending resources to fix the mistakes that Grunfeld made so that they could compete to make the playoffs. This year, I'm talking about making a move, spending an asset to fix mistakes that Grunfeld has made so that they can compete in the playoffs. And there's a big difference there. And I I think if there's any year to make a move with a draft pick this is the one yeah so given the fact that the the wizards are going to obviously have to send salary out along with this draft pick and Mm -hmm. there's a decent chance it's going to be undesirable salary unless it's sadaransky by the way and the reason i brought him up before is if you're looking if you're going to make a move and say, you know what, we are going to improve our backcourt rotation, we want a high-quality third guard, and you're deciding that he's not going to be the guy this year, and you're not even sure if he could be that guy next year, you might as well trade him. That that that's that's my thought. But but maybe it's him. Maybe it's Andrew Nicholson. Maybe it's Smith. The, the problem or the dilemma, if you will, in looking at the trade market is. There are a lot of decent players. There are a lot of players who who could potentially help the rotation, who would likely be on the market, who are not signed for very long. Either they are expiring contracts this coming summer, or maybe they've got one more year. It would seem to me that it's going to be a challenge to find a guy who they can afford, who can come in and help them right away and is going to be on the team for more than a half a season or a season and a half. Prime example. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, look at Darren Collison in Sacramento. Yeah, they, they just beat yeah. Golden State, but they're not going to make the playoffs in all likelihood. If I was the Sacramento GM and someone offered me a first-round pick and, for, and some salary filler for a guy who was likely to leave town— I'd be all over that. Darren Collison would be a big help for the Wizards from as, as far as I can tell because he can play the backup point and he shoots over 40% from three, so you can also play him alongside Wall. The problem with Collison is he's an impending free agent, and because of last summer, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to re-sign him and keep Otto. What do you, what do, you do with someone like that? One of the key pieces of information that we on the outside don't know is whether Leonsis is going to be willing to pay anything into the luxury tax for a year or two. So, for example, if he's willing to pay luxury tax for next year or maybe for the next couple of years, then it becomes easier. And I'm not talking about going crazy like having a $200 million payroll, but if he's willing to go over by a few million dollars, then you can make a move comfortably for a guy like Darren Collison, re-sign him, and then you've got a pretty solid backcourt for a few years. 
and that's kind of the same thing with each of these expiring guys that we've, we've talked about or we're going to talk about is if Leonsis is willing to dig in and pay a little something in the luxury tax, then the problem is easily resolved. Now, if Leonsis doesn't want to pay the luxury tax, which, by the way, I think is completely reasonable. I think the, the luxury tax line is a reasonable hard cap for a team owner to say, I'll spend that much, but no more. So if he's not willing to do that, then you have to find another way to get rid of salaries so that you can bring guys in. Yeah, they the Wizards handcuffed themselves with the offseason that they had, giving so much money to guys who are not very good. But maybe you start having to look at trading some of those guys away or stretching them so that you can make a run. Because, again, the East is open. That There's no great team in the East. And the Wizards have as good a shot as anybody if what we believe is that the last 40 games, the last half season is the real Wizards, if you can help them, help that group, that core group of four or five guys, then you've got a chance at making perhaps a deeper run than anybody thought was possible, say, on October 31st. I, I hear what you're saying. As a fan, when it comes to the luxury tax, what I would hope is that, because I, I believe that Leontis is objections to it maybe are somewhat purely budgetary that he doesn't want to spend the money but i also think it has to do with how difficult it makes making subsequent moves the 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 how how the cba limit limits you once you're in the tax so my hope would be that leonsis would say look i'll pay the tax but you got to show me why I need to, and I'm only going to do it for a year because once you you start paying it multiple years, then then these in I think Ted's words were draconian. Then 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 it is becomes mm-hmm. really hard. And there have been articles about the Clippers and the Cavs and their trade situations and how they're affected by them them being in the tax. There was a just published roundtable on Bullets Forever about Andrew Nicholson. If there's any urgency to make a move with him now or this summer, I do think that the stretch provision should be on the table for him. As it relates to this specific question, the Wizards could waive him this summer. They'd save over $3 million a year for the subsequent three years. And then they'd have, I think, a $2.8 million hit on their cap for the next four years. And at that point, Mm -hmm. the cap should be so high that it's it's not a immensely material number it's certainly not ideal but if you can make a if you can trade Sadoransky and a first for someone of the impact of Darren Collison and then you can keep that guy by stretching Nicholson maybe maybe now's the time to do it let's talk about some other names so, some potential some potential trade targets so you've got these guys in the expiring basket You've got Collison, you've got Tyreek Evans, who we saw twice this week, who is not a perfect player, but actually does some things I think could help the Wizards. I think he would be a fine third guard. What do you think about Evans? Yeah, Tyreek is a guy that I've been up and down on. He's a little down this year. He's a pretty good player, not very efficient offensively. He's another one of these like high-usage, low-efficiency Kentucky guys. Um, that said, He went to Memphis. He's a Calipari guy. 
But he's not a. But yeah. But he went to. Memphis. Oh yeah, that's right. A Calipari guy, not a Kentucky yeah. guy. A Calipari guy. He could help the Wizards coming off the bench. I think, you know, just as a guy who will create offense, will go to the basket, will you know do some things offensively that they they don't have anything like him coming off their bench. He's not really somebody I think is going to move the needle a ton for them, but he would help. One other thing that we should probably think about as well is the possibility that you go ahead, you burn your first round pick, and you have a guy for just the stretch run of the season in the playoffs and then hope that guys like Sadoransky and Ubre are ready for bigger roles next year. You know, that you're making a trade for a bridge year and then perhaps you buy some second round picks and take some shots on some guys that have some have potential. That's not the Wizards' forte. You know, their usual move is to sell second-round picks. There you go, spending Ted Leonsis' money again. Yeah, but second-round picks can be obtained pretty cheaply, relatively speaking. And anyway, I'm going to write something on this, and we'll talk about it at some point in the future. But the Wizards' strategy on the second round is completely wrong. But like I said, we'll get into that some other time. Give me a few other so, names. But the bottom line, back to Tyreek Evans. Okay. I, th- I think he could help, but... He wouldn't be my top choice. I I like the, the one of the things I like about him is just he's enormous for for a guard and yeah. the playoffs are physical and I wouldn't mind having him in there. But but give me some other names of of potential trade targets that that you would deem worthy of uh, of that first round pick or or whatever the Wizards would be able to give up. Number one on my list would be Lou Williams in L.A. He's filling it up, scores like crazy, combo guard. He's having a, a good year for him, but it's not like outlandishly good for him, you know, where you would expect a, a guy of his caliber to peak. I, th- I think he could come in. He'd be an ideal third guard with Wall and Beal. He could play with Wall. He could play with Beal, either one. And I, I think he'd be ideal, if, especially if the Lakers would take a first and some garbage contract. That would be That would be ideal. Because he would really come in and, and help them. On the books for $7 million bucks next year, so potentially yeah. potentially workable. Yeah, especially if you could give up Nicholson. And I'd be willing also to include Sadoransky in that kind of a deal. Because I think Lou Williams would be really ideal for pushing the Wizards a little further. You know, he might be worth a couple extra wins over the course of the remainder of the season. And who knows what, what he can help with in the playoffs. And the nice thing about Lou Williams is that if either wall or Beal goes down for a couple weeks, he's a good step in starter. Yeah. And then some other names that you and I kicked around a little bit. Wilson Chandler is, he's a little expensive in terms of salary. He's like in the 11 million this year and about 12 million next year. Good player. He's usually rates, at least in my stuff as, you know, average to a little below average this year. He's PPA is 89, which is about his norm. And he's a guy who could come in and help. I think he can play. Certainly he could back up Otto at the, the three. And I think he could play some in in small ball rotations with Porter as well. So if, if they could get um, Chandler, especially for some of their bad contracts in a first, that might be worth making that move. I still prefer Lou Williams. He'd be my top choice because I think Mahinmi can probably help them in terms of their front court when he comes back assuming he's able to, to play decently. I, I can't believe that where I am right now is that, that I want the Wizards to trade their first-round pick, but you, you have convinced me, and obviously we have we have some excitement coming up between now and the trade deadline. 
So with that, we're going to wrap up today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or however you listen to podcasts. Kevin is on Twitter at broom underscore Kevin. You can find his Wizards-related work on Bullets Forever. You can also check out kevinbroom.com for Kevin's other writing, including his upcoming mystery novel. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Becker. Until next time, this is Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever. Bullets Forever.